Well, thanks for that warm welcome and what a privilege to be in a really cool space uh, looking at some very important questions. This is a really important question, obviously, the whole question of truth. Does it matter? What do you think? I was reading a really interesting article the other day about a guy called Wolf Dietrich Christian Schmidt. Does anyone know who that is? He was a German spy caught by Britain and then used by Britain as a double agent against Nazi Germany under the code name Tate. And he was part of what was called the double cross system under which German agents in Britain were controlled by MI5 and then used to deceive Germany. A really interesting article about truth because through this double cross system, Britain was able to convince Nazi Germany who had invented these rockets called the V2 rockets that couldn't be shot down by planes because they could actually launch up into the stratosphere for the first time in human history and come down on top of where we're sitting right now in London. London was defenseless against these weapons, except that they had one thing at their disposal, lies and deception. And so they managed to convince through this double-cross system that the bombs were actually landing too far. They were overshooting London. And so what happened was these V2 bombs started landing in London, but the, by and by they started landing further east and further east until eventually they weren't landing in London at all. You see, the truth in war really mattered. You probably know that famous quote by Winston Churchill. In wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. During wartime, people were really interested in truth. Truth was valuable, influential, important. Well, what about today? In 2016, not so long ago, The Economist magazine published that famous or infamous article in which they argued the West has become a post-truth society. You probably remember that article. What is a post-truth society? A society in which public opinion is influenced not so much by appeals to truth and fact, but by appeals to emotion and to personal opinion. And then the Oxford English Dictionary at the end of the year announced that post-truth was their word of the year. It's probably the first time in history that a society has been described as post-truth, but actually the idea that truth is not a huge influence over our lives, that's not something that's completely new. That has been a theme that has repeated itself at various times throughout human history and different human civilizations. Now, as a lawyer, I'm actually fascinated by what is probably the most famous legal trial in human history. That's the trial of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. This conversation begins with Pilate asking Jesus if indeed he is a king. And the very interesting answer of Jesus was, is this your own question or has someone else put you up to this? In other words, Jesus is asking Pilate, is this a genuine question? Are you really interested in the truth or are you going to value expediency and convenience and comfort over the truth? Do you really love truth? And what is Pilate's response to Jesus? It's actually what we would consider today a very postmodern response. He says, what is truth? What is truth? And then without waiting for an answer, he simply walks away. Like Pontius Pilate, our culture too has largely walked away from the idea of truth as something important, something valuable, something even at all. 
the renowned Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has described our uh, society as disenchanted. By disenchanted, he means that there's nothing transcendent in our life anymore. We don't believe in absolutes. God used to be an absolute, no longer. Objective truth used to be regarded as an absolute, no longer. Is truth dead? That was the provocative title on the front cover of Time magazine in March last year, very much resembling the famous cover of 1966, Is God Dead? Is truth dead? And I thought whoever put that picture on there before with Donald Trump and Obama, and I think it was Jesus as well uh, that was there, has got the idea that in a world of fake news and alternative facts and political correctness, and it's a question that many people are really wrestling with today. Is truth dead? There's so much cultural confusion, I'm sure you've noticed, over the notion of truth. You see, on the one hand, you have the academic world, and in the academy, the popular view of truth is that it's relative. It's cultural, it's socially constructed. There's no such thing as absolute or objective truth, only people's personal opinions and cultural perspectives. What is true for one individual or one culture is true for them, but not necessarily for anyone else. But on the other hand, you've got this thing called everyday life and common sense, which we all butt up against whether we like it or not. And in everyday life, truth seems anything but relative. I mean, whether we're examining an itemized bill from the mechanic telling us what needed fixing from the car, or whether we're intending to buy a house, which in London is pretty much uh, impossible, but if you one day live that dream, then you'll be getting a structural survey done to determine whether this house is actually gonna stand once you move into it, or whether you're uh, in appearing or testifying in court, or whether you're working in finance and looking at the financial statement of a company to see what sort of position it's in. In these common sense, everyday life matters, truth is anything but relative. We don't live as if it doesn't matter, it doesn't exist. Why not? Well, because we know from reason and from experience that when people make important decisions on the basis of untruth, on the basis of lies, it can lead to all sorts of disastrous and tragic circumstances. Uh, last year, my then four-year-old daughter, Grace, woke me up at about five o'clock in the morning to tell me that my then three-year-old son, Jonathan, couldn't walk. I was like, what are you talking about? And then I sort of woke up and I panicked because he'd had a high fever over the last few days. So I ran upstairs and there he was on the floor, unable to walk. He normally could walk by then. And because of these high temperatures, we were really concerned. So we rushed him off to the hospital. Now, it was a really great relief when the hospital pediatrician finally came to us and, and told us that, um, that the fever had resulted in muscle breakdown in his legs um, but it's okay, it wasn't anything more sinister than that. It hadn't hit the central nervous system or anything like that. With plenty of rest and plenty of fluid, Jonathan was going to be okay and able to walk again. Is truth dead? Does truth matter? Well, in the case of my son, Jonathan, as I waited in that hospital room for the results of his blood test, the answer was obvious. Yes, the truth matters. I wasn't looking for different ideas and perspectives and thoughts and feelings about what was ailing him. I was looking for a diagnosis. I was looking for authority. I was looking for the truth. Now, in response to those who would argue that truth is relative, the Oxford philosopher Roger Scruton has written that somebody who says that there are no truths or that all truth is merely relative is asking you not to believe them. So don't. That, I want to suggest, is the essential problem. 
for those who hold that there's no truth because on the one hand they're saying that truth doesn't exist and on the other hand they're saying it's true that truth doesn't exist it's a logical contradiction a contradiction unfortunately that many people fail to realize and see until reality bites us and reminds us that truth is something that exists whether we like it or not uh, we see this illustrated very clearly uh, in a, a, a transcript um, from the BBC history website um, which is a transcript of a radio conversation that took place between the English and uh, sorry the British and the Irish off the coast of County Kerry Ireland in October 1998 uh, and the transcript reads as follows as the Irish said please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision British recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Irish negative. You will have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. British this is the captain of a British Navy ship. I say again divert your course. <laughs> Irish negative. I say again you will have to divert your course. British, this is the aircraft carrier HMS Britannia, the second largest ship in the British Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand you change your course 15 degrees north. I say again that is 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. Irish, we are a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> Truth is very much like that lighthouse. It exists whether you want to acknowledge it or not, and you ignore it at your own peril. Now, some things in life clearly are just matters of taste. You know, which tastes better, Coke Zero or Pepsi Max? Or which is the better holiday, a holiday relaxing at the beach or an action and adventure holiday rock climbing up the Matterhorn? There's no necessarily right or wrong answer, unless you're my wife, in which case it's definitely the holiday at the beach is the right answer and that's the end of the discussion. But really, we know that these things are just a matter of preference. But other questions, however, are a matter of reality, a question of fact. Is this fizzy drink full of sugar or not? Will this rope hold my weight or not? Is that a small boat ahead or a lighthouse? Many people think that the big religious and philosophical questions of life are merely questions of preference or taste in the same category as the questions, what's your favorite drink or what's the best holiday? But they aren't. They're questions of fact. Are we here by accident or are we here on purpose? Is there such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil? Is there life after death? Do I have a soul? Is there a God? These are questions of fact. There either is a life after death or there isn't. And one day we'll find out. But there either is or there isn't. There either is a God or there isn't. Jesus Christ is either risen from the dead and alive today or he isn't. Now, the early followers of Jesus were willing to go on record and say that Jesus is Lord of all in a Roman culture that said religion is strictly a private affair, except for one public religion only, the worship of 
Caesar. Only Caesar, the physical embodiment of the state, was Lord of all, but the Christians refused to make Jesus simply a private matter because for them, this whole thing about Jesus wasn't just a new idea or a philosophy or a religious experience that they were promoting for a particular group. For them, Jesus had risen from the dead, literally, actually, factually, historically. And they were eyewitnesses of this historical fact, this good news, this public news. And for them, it was amazing news. It meant that God has not abandoned us. He loves us. Now, as individuals with freedom of choice, we all have to make our own decisions about these important questions. Each person must think and investigate these important matters for themselves. But the one thing we cannot say is that the truth doesn't matter. Because some decisions that we make in life, they matter for a day or a week or a, or a year. Other uh, choices matter for a lifetime. But when it comes to the big questions, such as the question of God, this is a choice that matters for eternity. The writer C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is mildly important. That's why the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, who I think had the coolest name in history, <laughs> and I wanted to name Jonathan Blaise, but <laughs> I wasn't allowed to, but anyway. But French philosopher Blaise Pascal made the point that if you were a gambler, you would be a terrible gambler if you decided not to at least seriously consider and investigate Christianity because there's absolutely nothing to gain by investigating and yet absolutely nothing to lose by investigating it and yet possibly everything to gain. But to take something like Christianity and say, well, it's either true or it isn't true, that doesn't go down very well in today's cultural climate. Not only because truth is thought to be relative or subjective, but also because truth has come to be thought of as offensive. Truth has come to be regarded by many as an act of war. How's that come about? Well, this popular truth, uh, view of truth has developed, which holds that all our beliefs or ideas have been socially constructed and usually constructed by those in power. Therefore, overarching truth claims are viewed with great suspicion as attempts to dominate and suppress individual freedom and nothing is more highly valued in the West than individual freedom. And the thing about a truth claim is that it implies that those who think different are wrong. But we all have the right to feel right. So it's confusing. So we've, we've sort of landed at the point where we think it's okay to talk about personal preferences and subjective perspectives, but we don't talk about truth because we're, we're afraid to do so. We're actually afraid that in doing so, we might offend someone. So culturally, everything's been set up to avoid any disagreement. And we really pride ourselves on being a tolerant society. Now, tolerance used to mean something like the comment attributed to Voltaire, which was, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That was the old view of tolerance. The new understanding of tolerance um, means something like this. I cannot, will not, and dare not disapprove of what you say because what you have to say is every bit as valid as what I have to say and I'll put to death anyone who says otherwise. 
In other words, the new tolerance tolerates not only all people, but all ideas. To say some ideas are right and others wrong is now intolerant, almost a form of abuse. So whatever is true for you, we say is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me, but we must never say that something's true for everyone. That would disrespect the right we have to form our own opinions. That would be intolerant, and in a post-truth, a post-truth world that rejects all certainties and all absolutes, the one thing that is absolutely certain is that intolerance must not be tolerated. It gets confusing. The question of whether Jesus Christ was tolerant or intolerant is a very interesting one. You see, on the one hand, no one was off limits to his love. No one. He loved all people. But on the other hand, Jesus didn't love all ideas, which is why what Jesus had to say is so incredibly jarring in today's world because Jesus didn't claim to be a truth or one of a number of truths. He claimed to be the truth with a capital T. Now, in order for truth to not be ultimately relative, there does need to be a fixed point from which everything else has reference. Now, philosophers, people who are much smarter than me, call this fixed point an ontic referent, or poets often use the language North Star. Jesus' claim was that he was that North Star, that fixed point, the ultimate source and arbiter of truth and reality. Which is why, incidentally, it's really difficult to dismiss Jesus as just a good moral teacher. Because someone who claims to be the source of all reality is either completely crazy or a con artist trying to start their own cult or actually telling the truth. Which is it? Well, it's not just a good moral teacher. Now, interestingly, as you try to work out which was it, was he a con artist? Was he completely crazy? Or was he actually telling the truth? Think about this. His disciples were on the road with Jesus 24-7 over a period of three years. That's plenty of time to recognize a person's true nature, authenticity, integrity. At the same time, his teachings are almost universally recognized as morally brilliant and insightful and profound. Hardly the words of a man, man, madman. In fact, the most common uh, motto in all the universities of the world uh, you will find uh, on walls is the motto of Jesus, the truth shall set you free. Now that resonated with universities for most of our history, but today uh, we don't think of truth as something that brings freedom. In the last few generations, we've been educated to devalue and distrust truth because we've come to think of truth as something that instead of promoting freedom, as Jesus suggested, actually restrains us, limits us, boxes us in. And I wonder, could this be the real answer to why as a society we've walked away from truth? Could it be because deep down we sense that truth might interfere with something that we long for even more, which is freedom without restraint or accountability. The freedom to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, however we want, without anyone or anything telling us otherwise. Interestingly, some very well-known atheist philosophers have admitted as such. Uh, Aldous Huxley, for example, writes, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. 
For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Now, another atheist philosopher, Thomas Nagel, also being very candid and honest, writes, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the atheism of our time. I think that sort of honesty is to be commended. It, it, it points to a real truth, uh, attention uh, in our psyche. What are we aiming for? What are we wanting? Are we always 100% objective and non-biased when we make these decisions? Now, in Time magazine, the article, Is Truth Dead?, the tone was not one of celebration, but one of warning. The key question that the writer in Time magazine was asking was this, where are we headed as a society, socially, politically, culturally, if truth as a currency loses all value? What happens to a people who walk away from truth? Now, with respect to our university campuses, commentators on both sides of the political spectrum are lamenting the loss of free speech. As you're probably aware, students are increasingly barring or no-platforming speakers who dare to speak their beliefs with certainty because that certainty is deemed to make those who don't share their beliefs feel uncomfortable, and everybody has the right to feel uh, comfortable on campus. And many social commentators observing these events are asking whether or not we're, in, uh, whether we're not in fact losing our freedom in the name of freedom, freedom of speech, freedom uh, to dissent, our freedom to simply disagree. Now, students correctly value inclusivity and non-discrimination and rightly, in my view, feel moral outrage when these things are threatened. But if all truth is relative, as many students believe and as many of the professors who are teaching them would teach, then one must ask, where does the moral outrage come from? If it is outrage over the violation of students' rights. Where do those rights come from if there is no truth? Because if there is no truth, there are no rights to speak of because without truth, there is no right or wrong. But have you discovered it's very difficult to be a human being without thinking that some things are right and some things are wrong? Some things are wrong like racism or genocide or child abuse? When we experience moral outrage over this or that injustice or violation of a person's indignity, it's a clue that truth, in this case, moral truth, really exists and it really matters. That's the essential problem with trying to dismiss truth claims as nothing more than attempts to exercise power over other people. It's that by getting rid of truth, you're actually removing the only thing that can stand up against actual power. Because as the philosopher Nietzsche pointed out long ago, if truth doesn't exist, then power is all there is, baby. He didn't say baby, but he just said power <laughs> is all there is. Now, if, just think about that. If truth doesn't exist, then there's no right, only might. And as history demonstrates, the world becomes a scary place when might is all there 
is. That's why truth really matters, not just philosophically, but politically and practically. It was belief in the existence of truth that allowed people like Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Vaclav Havel, Desmond Tutu, to speak truth to power, to totalitarian regimes. Truth was all that they had at their disposal in their ultimately successful fight for freedom against oppressive regimes or against oppressive laws. The novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was himself a victim of totalitarian regimes, said one word of truth outweighs the entire world. But what happens if we become post-truth? If we walk away from truth? If we no longer believe in truth? Well, I think we're in trouble. Because if you don't believe in truth, how do you recognize a lie? And as a journalist, Walter Lippmann sagely observed, there can be no liberty for a community which lacks the means to detect lies. Truth brings freedom, but lies lead to captivity, to slavery. Now, of course, we prefer freedom to its opposite, um, but we don't always prefer the truth to its opposite. Why is that? Why do we have such an uneasy relationship with truth? Aristotle once asked his readers to imagine a morally perfect person, a sort of God amongst men, someone who not only was themselves morally pure, but who could look into a person's eyes and see everything they've ever done and everything they've ever thought about as well. And he said, what would a society do with a godlike person like that? Aristotle said the society would ostracize him or kill him. I wonder how would you feel in the presence of a morally and perceptibly perfect person like that? Would you feel completely at ease? I know I wouldn't. I'd want to wear a pair of dark sunglasses around a person like that. But why do we have this instinct to hide? If we're honest with ourselves, we all have parts of our character, our feelings, our thoughts and actions that we would prefer other people not to see. Things about us which we're afraid if people did see, that they would be put off, even offended, maybe even disgusted. The truth can be really incredibly uncomfortable. Jesus speaks about this to his disciples when he says, the light shines in the darkness, but people prefer the darkness. Now, darkness is not pleasant. But one thing it's got in its favor is that it allows things to stay hidden. The problem with light is that light reveals things as they really are. Now, Jesus' friends and followers believed that Jesus was morally perfect, literally a God amongst men, a man who knew what was in every human heart. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. We should expect, therefore, much as Aristotle pr predicted, that he would make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. And when you read about him in the Bible, he did make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. They did try to ostracize him. They did try to kill him. And they did eventually kill him on false charges. However, there were also many who loved him. How was it then that Jesus' friends, those who loved him, were able to withstand the gaze of someone who knew all truth, who could see into the very depths of their soul and knew everything they did, they've done and everything they've ever thought, and yet not feel afraid in Jesus' presence? And the answer that the Bible gives us is love. The Bible says that perfect love drives out all fear. And that not only does Jesus have the ability to shine a light into the depths of your soul and to see the real you, including the dark places that you don't want anyone else to see, 
He also loves you entirely and cannot help but love you with an everlasting love. That's who the Bible says Jesus is. In other words, this light that reveals the shadows in our hearts is also a light that has the power to send those shadows fleeing as well. This light, which is truth, not only highlights and reveals, this light also heals. Because it is truth, but it is also love. Truth wrapped in love and love wrapped in truth. Not merely conceptually, but in a person. Rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Son of God. Now today, we would say the greatest virtue is tolerance. But if you were to ask people 100 years ago, what is the greatest virtue? They would have almost unanimously answered love. Tolerance is a poor substitute for love. And that's why, as a friend of mine, Michael Ramson, says, we would much all prefer to hear the words, I love you, than I tolerate you. <laughs> the poet Chris Jammy writes, Tolerance is patience that has lost its hope and love that is thrown in the towel. And the great English writer G.K. Chesterton defines tolerance as the appalling frenzy of the indifferent. The wonderful news is that God does not merely tolerate us. He is not indifferent towards us. The Bible says God loves us. My daughter Grace puts it like this. She says, I am God's treasure. It's true. We are his treasure. He sees our hearts as they truly are, and he doesn't reject us. He loves us. He knows the dark sides of our character. Addiction, selfishness, guilt, shame. We've all got it. Every single human being, every single person in this room, we've all got these things. Jesus sees every bit of it. He doesn't reject us. He loves us. God, through Jesus, offers to forgive us and cleanse us and rescue us from all these dark things, including our own dark sides. In other words, he offers us true freedom because true freedom is not the permission to do whatever we please Rather, it's the power to do what we ought to do, what we were made to do. And for that, we need the light of God's truth to know what we ought to do and the power of his love to enable us and fill us to live as we ought to live, a life of love. Christianity is an invitation to know the reality of God's love, not just as a philosophy or a religious idea, but as experienced in relationship with the living Jesus Christ. And this living Lord Jesus Christ offers to dwell in our hearts by his Holy Spirit, not only that we may know God's love and forgiveness, but also his enabling encouragement and power to live the life of love that he made us for. We tend to think that life is some sort of competition that we have to win in order to be somebody, when actually the purpose of life is to love and to be loved, and it all begins with receiving the love of God. Now, this invitation is incredible good news if we don't mind being rescued but we don't always like the idea of needing outside rescue let me share with you the utter embarrassment that I once experienced as a seven-year-old when I was paddling on a blow-up canoe in the beach in Australia riding the huge waves which were probably about this big at the time <laughs> and feeling like an absolute legend in control of the world when I noticed that I was being dragged out to shore, out to, out to sea. And I tried paddling back against the current, but my 
seven-year-old arms were not nearly as impressive as I thought they were, and the current was winning. These two teenage girls noticed my predicament, and they came over and said, I think you need some help. And I said, no way, I don't need any help. <laughs> I didn't want to be dragged out to sea, but no way did I want to be rescued by two <laughs> girls. Thankfully, they just ignored my seven-year-old pride, grabbed the uh, canoe, and brought me safely back into shore. Now, in life, we need truth, and we need love. We need grace. We need someone who can tell us the truth about our situation, as they were for me. Uh, but we also need uh, rescue. We need someone who's willing to actually help us. We don't just need a, you know, a doctor who can diagnose our problem accurately. We also need a doctor who's willing to get their hands bloody and operate on us and fix the problem on the inside. In Jesus Christ, there is truth that we are far more broken morally and spiritually than we could ever have imagined, and we need rescue. But there's also love. We are far more precious to God than we could ever have imagined, and he's come to rescue us. Let me finish with this story. Dr. Zacharias tells the story of a little girl whose parents warned her time and time again that she must never wander off into the woods that bordered their family farm because it was dangerous and easy to get lost in. But one day the little girl decided that she would wander off and explore the dark secrets of the forest. And the further she wandered, the denser it became until she lost her bearings and couldn't find her way back. And as darkness descended, fear gripped her and all her screams and sobs only wearied her until she fell asleep in the woods. Now friends, family, volunteers combed the area looking for her but gave up in the thick of the night, all except her father who continued to search. Early the next morning, the girl awoke to the first rays of sunlight to see her dad running towards her as fast as he could. She threw her arms out to him, wrapped her up, and he, as he wrapped her up in his tight embrace, she repeated over and over, Daddy, I found you. Daddy, I found you. The Christian message is that the love and acceptance which your heart truly seeks is ultimately found in a person who has already sought you. The most famous passage in the Bible says it best, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, not to condemn the world, but to rescue it by living the life we should have lived, dying the death that we deserve to die on our behalf, in our place, on the cross, burying and taking our guilt and our shame on his shoulders, burying it in the grave, and then rising again and defeating our greatest enemy, death. And it says that whoever believes in him will not ultimately perish, but will have everlasting life. The Christian message is that truth is not dead. The truth is very much alive. And whether or not you are interested in the truth, the truth is very much interested in you. For Jesus says, I am the truth. Follow me. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the invitation. That's the promise. And it's an invitation that's open to all.